Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Data Rebels on Tap. I am your host, Randy Pitcher. Today, we are pleased to welcome Drew Bannon. Drew is the Chief Product Officer and Co-Founder of Fishtown Analytics, uh, the company known for DBT, if you're familiar with that tool. In this episode, we're going to discuss analytics engineering and building communities. Uh, but before that, let's have a drink. Drew, welcome to the show. What are you drinking today? Hey, Randy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm drinking a gin and tonic. Okay, right on. Why'd you choose gin and tonic? Um, it's a great question. We uh, we make DBT at Fishtown Analytics, and you know some programming languages talk about code being uh, standardized. Like in Python, it would be Pythonic, and for us, okay. we talk about code being dbtonic. Uh, okay. And so I thought maybe gin and tonic, uh, dbtonic. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Gin and tonic. I'm going to use that from now on. My code is uh, gin and tonic. Um, I also got gin, no tonic though, um, just actually flat water. Usually I like to mix sparkling water, but I am out. Uh, and this is a uh, wheat state distilling uh, handcrafted small batch gin. It's so small batch and so early. A friend gave this to me. It is their second batch ever for this, and it is their 532nd bottle. So it is uh, pretty early in the run. And this is out of Wichita, Kansas. So um, shout out to to that distillery. And I think it's uh, delicious. It tastes great. It's got kind of a lemon flavor, some wildflower. Um, and I've been a big gin fan. So when you mentioned that you were going to do uh, gin for this show, I was really excited because I uh, I also like gin. But to, to dive into things a little bit more, um, you want to start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what you do at your company? Um, yeah, sure thing. So um I'm one of the co-founders at Fishtown Analytics. Uh, you may know us from um, the open source software that we maintain. It's called DBT. Um, DBT is used by uh, coming up on 2,000 companies every week wow. these days, um, which is which is a pretty exciting number. It's you know when we started it, like any open source project, you just make public on say GitHub. Uh, it had two weekly active users, and they were Tristan and I originally. Um, <laughs> So these days, uh, we you know we recently announced we raised some money at Fishtown Analytics, and um, what that's helping us do is kind of scale our development of DBT. So I spent a lot of time working with the engineers on our team and basically every, every part of the organization, making sure we're building a good product and everyone knows uh, how to use it and, and what it does and what's coming up, things like that. Um, so, so the so yeah, go ahead. No, I, I want to. I wanted to ask about uh, DBT. How how do you know who's using that? Is that through just um, pip installs, or you? How do you track that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, DBT is a tool that folks use for data modeling, and uh, we have every analytics tool you can imagine uh, plugged in at, at some part of our stack. So um, we use, I think, both Stitch and Fivetran and Looker and Mode. We have Snowflake and Redshift and BigQuery accounts. Uh, wow. We primarily do work on Snowflake uh, internally. Um, so we uh, we have an event tracking tool called Snowplow plugged in where it sends anonymous um, telemetry pings that says like, you know, a project was run. Um, and it's all, right. everything's hashed and anonymized, but it lets us understand um, how many teams out there are using DBT. I didn't realize that. That's really clever. Yeah, you can, uh, there's an option to disable it uh, if you oh. did not like that yet. <laughs> no, I'm excited about it. I hadn't realized. Uh, so, so you guys had raised some money that was um, exciting, and you guys are going to develop more on DBT. And I noticed you guys have this um, different kind of approach. You have DBT Core and then DBT Cloud. Can you explain that? Because I know that a lot of people I talk to, they're confused about that differentiation. Oh, yeah. Um, DBT Core is the open source SQL compiler and runner. Uh, DBT Core lets you write 
your data models and tests and things like that um, using SQL plus Jinja, the templating language uh, that DBT uses. And all of that's open source and will continue to be forever. Um, the other thing that DBT Core does is connects to different databases. So there are core plugins like Snowflake, Redshift, BigQuery, Postgres. There are also more community supported ones that we maintain. So that's Spark and Presto. And then right. a layer beyond that, there's like true community maintained plugins that we had no part in ever writing. And it plugs right into the core ecosystem. Um, and some of those exist for, I think I've heard of, um, uh, definitely um, Microsoft SQL Server, yeah. but also some of the stranger ones that we hear about less. So like Vertica, or I think it's pronounced Natiza, but I've heard- Natiza? You guys Natiza. have a Natiza connector, really? So, I mean, that's the thing. Like when you say you guys have, uh, we have open source Apache 2 license <laughs> software and somebody yeah. else out there, at least from murmurings I've heard uh, either on Slack or GitHub, I can't remember where, somebody yeah. said they were working on one. So yeah. I couldn't point to it, but it's a cool plugin architecture where if dbt does like mysql people have asked for mysql a ton yeah we don't think it's a proper like analytical database but we can understand why someone would want to run dbt on it so yeah. you can build your own plugin and and share it with other people if you want to okay so dbt you guys are really focusing on analytical databases analytical applications right that's right it's twofold it's one it's that dbt solves a problem that you know there's a modern stack that involves databases like say snowflake Redshift, bigquery um, yeah. It's also like the the types of utilities that DBT requires exist on um, these analytic databases, and we don't see them so frequently in transactional databases like, say, uh, MySQL. Yeah. Um, it just, I think in some cases, lacks some of the functionality DBT would need uh, yeah. to, to do a good job. And so we haven't, we haven't broached it to date. So how, how does that differ? Because so far, what we've discussed has been in the open source realm. Uh, but you guys do have an offering, DBT Cloud. Can you explain what that is a little bit? Absolutely. So DBT Core, you interact with on the command line. And DBT Cloud is a hosted user interface into DBT Core. And so there's sort of uh, three, well, two, maybe we'll say three big parts of the application. One is just job scheduling. So you have a DBT okay. project. You need to run it hourly or nightly or um, kick off a CI build when you open a pull request in GitHub or something like that. Um, DBT Cloud integrates with other cloud tools, and it can help run these jobs on a schedule. The the other really big um, user interface inside of DBT Cloud is the IDE. So this is a place where you can write DBT code and live compile and execute it, run jobs in development, things like that. Um, this is helpful if, um, say, you're new to the analytics space. A, a lot of us are. Um, yeah. It's a lot to set up initially, and we, we wrote about this extensively. Like the barrier is very high to uh, get Python set up in your computer and pip install dbt and configure a hidden file in your home directory. And the joke is like, there's no, like Windows doesn't really have a, a home directory. So like uh, a lot of our instructions just didn't make sense because we were a little bit Mac centric originally. And um, it can be yeah. pretty tough at times to install dbt on, on a Windows machine, uh, especially if you're new to this space. So um, yeah, the IDE is all about like, get you set up writing data models, um, there's certainly still a lot to learn if you're trying to build these for the first time in a performant way, say. But um, we want yeah. you to focus on the data modeling, not on like the installation and configuration. Yeah, that's uh, a perspective I hadn't had before. I'm definitely I'm a Mac user as well, and I, I get into that world like just whatever brew, like just install it, like bit whatever. Um, but yeah, if you've got um, that that target audience you guys have, I don't think it is the core developer necessarily. Uh, so that's interesting that you would have to build this uh, to support these 
other kinds of users. Yeah, right on. So that was sort of like the the first thing that jumped out at us when we when we heard all this feedback. It's like DBT is hard to install. It's hard to onboard members of my team that want to use DBT but like can't get past these hurdles. Yeah, uh, that that made it pretty clear that we should build something like an IDE. Um, as we're using it though, we realized it like closes this development gap where um, DBT code is not just SQL. There's also Jinja inside of it, and yeah. so all the existing um, database query tools out there, like say your uh, data grips or your, I like Postico a lot. I, I really like that for Postgres Redshift uh, querying. You just can't, you can't run your DBT code in it because there's Jinja. And so the yeah. workflow is use DBT to compile a model, copy the compiled code into Postico or, or data grip or whatever, yeah. um, develop your code there, paste it back in your editor, Adam or VS code or something like that. And then replace all the Jinja that you had to like compile out in the first place. And it's just like yeah. this, it's this big gap in the workflow that we're able to sort of close the gap in, in the IDE because we can compile your SQL and then execute it directly against the database. That's powerful. Uh, that's really good. So uh, going back a little, you know, a step back before DBT, when you guys started Fishtown, I mean, was DBT a thought in your mind at that point? Did you know you wanted to build something like that? Uh, we started building DBT as an open source project back when we worked at a company called RJ Metrics. And uh, you might have heard of Stitch Data. They spun out of RJ in about 2016. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. So we all we were very close with the Stitch folks. We worked with many of them in the past. Um, who Stitch is now owned by um, Talent. Uh, one. Talent. Talent. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Um, so that, you know, it's pretty exciting for the Philly Tech scene in general. But um, that's just to say, we started building DBT when the, the foundations of Stitch were being formed at RJ Metrics. And so we saw the power of a database like Redshift. We saw that BI is really hard to do on top of raw data directly. Because yeah. um, you know, Stitch existed effectively, and we had raw data, but um, we had no tools to, to do anything with it or yeah. to like, build our own data models to, to get every we used mode at the time. Every mode report we wrote was like hundreds of lines because yeah. we were doing all the data modeling work at BI time. Um, and so we started building DBT there, and it was just a way to build a, um, a DAG, a directed acyclic graph of views. DBT initially only supported views on Redshift. Yeah. And you could just type DBT run. There were like no options. It built all <laughs> your views in dependency order. Um, and that was, that was how it worked for a few months. Um, and, you know, when when Stitch ended up spinning out is because RJ Metrics was uh, acquired at the time. And uh, we spun out Fishtown Analytics at the same time to, to build DBT and uh, at the time do a lot of consulting work um, implementing advanced analytics on this new stack for, for other companies. Yeah. And what made you decide to start your own company? Like you personally drew, how did you decide like, yeah, I'm going to make this jump. Is this something that's been an interest of yours for a long time or did it kind of surprise you? Um, if I drink six more gin and tonics, I'll, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the real truth. Okay. Um, just kidding. It, um, it wasn't really something I planned to do. Yeah. Uh, at, at that point, I mean, here's, here's the full truth. I was, uh, still in college when RJ metrics was, um, kind of split apart into some different companies and Fishtown spun out. I just graduated, I think like a week after that was announced. And so I was trying to yeah, figure out wow. like, what do I want to do for my career? And I saw Tristan was, you know, I worked with Tristan at RJ Metrics directly. Um, Tristan was starting Fishtown. And I thought, um, I don't have anything better going on right now. And 
I enjoy working on dbt so maybe we'll just keep doing it but this is like a thing that we used internally nobody really knew about it we were excited but um it wasn't obvious that that if you fast forwarded four years it would i'd be on a podcast with people asking me questions <laughs> about it at, at that time anyway so I'm, I'm very glad i did and fortunate to have been surrounded by so many great folks at rj metrics that i learned a ton from um and got to be in this environment like so so early but um yeah the truth is i uh I feel like I hopped on, uh, what's the expression? I don't know. I feel like I was kind of at the right place at the right time to to be in that situation. And we just yeah. very much like rolled with it from there. Tristan wow. wrote about the early days a lot recently in, in a blog post um, that just came out about how like, you know, really there's two, there's two big things that got us, got, that got the ball rolling, like got momentum behind DBT. It was um, some high profile companies in New York using DBT that were really enthusiastic about it. Yeah. That was very encouraging for us. And um, two was like, honestly, a lot of this anonymous event tracking where we could see like, oh, it's not three companies that are using DBT, it's 10. And then the next you know month, it's not 10, but it's 20. You're like, okay, well, what's gonna happen next month? Yeah, wow. So, so from when you graduated, you've been kind of doing your own thing since then. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't lead with that very often, but this is my, uh, this is my first real job. Uh, Man, that, that is really cool. Uh, that, that's very fortuitous. Uh, and it sounds like you have a great team because you guys write not just uh, a lot about DBT, but something I've enjoyed a lot, both in the Slack. So the Slack is a huge component of DBT, the DBT experience for me. It's the first place I went to learn how to use DBT. I should mention also, I am a huge, like entirely biased fan of DBT. Um, I know I worked for years in warehousing and SQL uh, and analytics without DBT. But now when people ask me like, okay, we can't, like I have large clients that'll be like, okay, it's a Python package. It'll take us six months to approve it. I don't, I don't believe that, but fine. What can we do until then that's not DBT? It's like, oh, you can just build DBT. Like that's what you'll end up doing. I don't even know what to recommend any stored procedures, I guess. I bash scripts that run SQL. I, I mean, do you, do you encounter any more people who are like, ask you like, oh, I can't do DBT. What, what, what would you even begin to recommend? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because people did this work before DBT existed, and there's certainly folks out there doing it today without DBT. Um, I think that, you know, from talking to people, there's a ton of organizations who build a version of this in-house themselves. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but it's like good enough. Yeah. Um, and that's always a fascinating conversation because there's some like giant hack that's employed, like every create view statement is like one line in a very big csv or something like that or yeah. like we take this json file and then you know and then there are others like i think in the early days we spent a lot of time looking at um snowplow is is an open source event tracking system that we like a lot yeah um they have a sort of like sql runner where it's not i as far as i understand it and i haven't looked at it in a while it's not dag aware but it lets you like make SQL files that are named and invoke them like on a schedule, things like that. Um, and, th and that was to model snowplow data, which like frequently data modeling is essential in an event tracking capacity where like you have a lot of bad events and the raw events don't necessarily map to like the metrics that you want to report yeah. on directly. So there's a, there's a ton of things out there that, that help you with this. Um, I think that um, if, if you wanted to, uh, the most important thing is like, Get your code version controlled. Yeah, and um, uh, and that's really where it comes from. If you like, stored procedures are great. If you want to run them manually, yeah, fine. it's probably fine for like you know some use cases. But make sure it's version controlled. 
I I know someone well who I'm not going to call it by name, but like uh, they didn't version control their SQL to create these views in the database. They left the company they were working at. We actually worked together in the past. Yeah. And um, uh, nobody at the company knew uh, <laughs> how, how anything worked or like Man. it moved order to run the things on. It's just like put it in Git and then go from there. That's the case at full stop, like 80% of the companies I work with. Um, we're called in, right? We're consultants. People don't call us in because things are like great, right? So we're called in and often it's like, well, the guy who like wrote this or the girl who wrote this, they're gone because they were really good and they got a different, better job. And no one knows how this, how this works. And reporting takes, it's like two weeks uh, to a month to get anything done and changes are all done like on top and it's manual and it's just broken, right? Um, also, oh, and this is the big one. Um, now we're running out of compute space because it's all on-prem and we need to like either buy more or move to the cloud and we don't know how to do this. So yeah, version control, I think that's really good advice. Um, and, and speaking of advice, going back, um, before you started Fishtown, I've got to imagine, you know, coming out of college, even if you weren't coming out of college, this had to have been a huge learning experience for you. I mean, for everyone, those years are formative, but for you specifically, this has been a ton. Is there anything that you would go back and tell yourself uh, before jumping in? Um, yeah, there's, well, you know, there's, I, I think that people learn from uh, good advice and bad mistakes. So I think to nice. some extent, like I had to, I had to experience some of the things uh, personally to like really understand them. But I also was the, the uh, I benefited from a lot of like learned wisdom from uh, people I, I was, I spent a lot of time around. And I guess to that extent, maybe the thing I want to say is I went to a, a private university here in Philadelphia called Drexel University. Um, Again, if if I have a lot more gin and tonics, I'll tell you about <laughs> my experiences at, at Drexel University. Uh, and that's not, that's like my academic experiences, to be sure. Yeah. Um, but the really wonderful thing about Drexel is that they have this kind of built-in um, cooperative education or co-op program. Yeah. And so in the five years that I spent at Drexel, it's like a five-year undergrad program. I got to do three six-month-long internships um, with uh, companies or startups, I suppose. Um, kind of baked into undergrad. And so it alternate, like, I think it was my sophomore year I started. I spent six months working at a high-frequency stock trading company, um, yeah. writing, like, high-performance C++ wire protocol stock data decoders. And wow. then I, and then you just, like, that's over. And it's like, okay, back to school. It's syllabus week. And I'm just sitting there, like, <laughs> twiddling a pencil, like, okay, come on. Like, I'm a professional now. But the reality is, like, I'm 19. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I, I had a bunch of incredibly positive experiences through through that um, mechanism, through this co-op program, where I, I did the stock trading work, I then went to RJ Metrics in Philadelphia. RJ Metrics had an incredible team at its peak in, in Philadelphia. I think we were like about 120 people, and I'm in pretty close contact with like some of the folks that <laughs> I worked closely with, with there back yeah. then. Um, and so I got to learn from all these people, and they were all like excellent and very generous with their time. And again, it's just like I'm a college student. I in some ways think I'm here to learn. And I get to be in like a, a real work environment with like, you know, some of the best engineers in Philadelphia, um, some of whom I, I work with still today, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, th that was like super foundational for me. I don't think I would have been even a little bit prepared to do any of this uh, out of college if I didn't have a bunch of like real work experience. So you had those three six months co-ops. That's powerful. And that's built into the program at, at yeah. Drexel? Yeah, right on. I, so my first school, I, I, I did a couple of victory laps in college for sure. Um, in my first school, I thought I'd do chemical engineering 
like whatever. I didn't know what I want to do. And I heard that was hard. And my thought was I'll do the hardest one. And when I find out what I like, it'll be less hard or as hard, right? I won't have to like scale up. Um, and I did, I did that for two years and I started a co-op as well. It was a 15 month one. We do them all in one big batch there. And it was doing um, polymer development, like rubber for oil and gas in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, like uh, Syracuse, Indiana, small, super small town, like barely had internet. Right. And it was the worst job ever covered in carbon all the time, stayed in a factory all day, uh, working on presses, like hot, like machines that crush uh, at high press. I was always afraid I was getting my hands stuck in one of them. I got burnt all the time. Uh, but the one thing that was cool was, uh, so like polymer development is not as scientific as you'd think. Like we just kind of mix stuff together and see what happens. And that involves a lot of analytics uh, and it's all Excel, right? But to make things go a little smoother, to make better visualizations, I started learning VBA. And it was like, man, this rocks. I love the days I could do that. So um, I moved out of that program as fast as I could, got into CS, started from scratch, and then just got into the industry. And I felt like if I would have gone, because I easily could have just stuck in school, gone four years and got a job, and then I would have figured out after graduating, like this sucks, um, that would have been bad for me. So I also had a formative co-op experience. And I think I people I've met who've worked a lot before actually fully graduating, um, it shows in... Um, the way they behave, the way they approach people, the way, what they do. Uh, but hey, Drew, tell me about this drink. It's time for the drink update. How has it, it been? Yeah, um, it's been great. The gin is um, mellow and the, uh, yeah. the tonic is, uh, is bright. And I got a little lime squeeze in there. Oh, a little um, lime squeeze? Yeah, nice. I did a little bit of lime. Yeah. I, how's uh, uh, how's I your gin treating you? Man, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, normal gin. So normally I'm a Seagram's guy and it's not because I've like tried all the gin and that's the one I like. It's just that's everywhere. And it seems to be like not that intimidating to order at a bar. I'm not like a bar guy. So if I do go to a bar, like I either ask for Seagram's or Guinness, two things everyone has. And like, I don't have to tell them how to make it. Um, but this is nicer because it is more lemony. I keep mentioning that lemon. Um, and normally, you know, you put lime in something like this, but it just pops. It tastes like summer. I've mixed it with this um, local honey at a farmer's market before and it makes such a great summer drink so i'm excited for summer the weather's getting nicer here uh it'd be nice to you know be able to go outside more but um yeah i'm, I'm feeling it i'm feeling uh, ready for summer yeah um me me too my we're all kind of figuring out like how can we add excitement to our lives these days yeah so my thing is uh been making a lot of lemonade in my french press really um, yeah the french press is totally optional but it feels right uh okay. pouring lemonade out of it and um, you can drop that in a, um, a thermos if you want and maybe add, you know, some other beverages of your choice, um, comply it with local and state laws yeah. and uh, go for a stroll, you know? Man, day um, drinking. Okay. Yeah, you know, oh, it's strictly legal. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, the weather's getting nicer and like, it, it's great. It's kind of rainy here in Philadelphia today, but like every nice day, it's just like, I can't wait to get outside and, and go for a walk and take in some sun. Yeah, that's the big part of my day is like the walk. My daughter, she's um, she's about to turn three. We just got her a bike, her first bike, and she is into it, man. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of like just walking. And when we would normally walk, it's kind of a lot for her to keep up. She gets distracted or whatever. But now with the bike, like we're keeping pace, man. We're going somewhere. Uh, so that's been fun. Well, hey, uh -huh. so getting back to the interview a little bit, um, I want to break away from strictly talking about, you know, Fishtown and DBT. And I want to talk more about you and your career and just kind of what it's like for you in the industry. 
So the first thing, and I like to ask this to a lot of folks, how do you stay up to date? You're in a really fast moving industry and you especially are working across lots of different warehouses. How do you stay up to date with everything? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, it's super challenging to stay up to date on like every single development everywhere. And yeah. so I rely a lot on the say DBT community or my colleagues with sort of people, everyone has their own specialized interests or projects they're working on or whatever. Um, uh, people are very like thoughtful and posting links to things about new developments or cool, cool new database techniques, whatever. Um, so I always love reading those. Um, I, uh, I subscribe to Tristan Handy's uh, Data Science Roundup, um, which he, he publishes every week or so, um, which has a bunch of great links to like what's going on in the, in the data world. Um, I, and, I didn't um, know about yeah. that. Is that. Is that a blog series or is it a, like a newsletter? Yeah, it's more of a newsletter. Um, yeah, he's been doing it for honestly four four plus years at this point. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's it's pretty good. There's a uh, I shouldn't say pretty good. It's it's very good. Um, <laughs> there's a ton of you know aggregators out there that will just collect all the top data or tech links, and yeah. it can be kind of a slog to read through all of them. But um, Tristan hits a good balance of like having really compelling links with some variety, but also giving just enough pros that helps you kind of figure out what you want to read on a Sunday morning. I'll have to check that check that out, and we'll add that to the show notes too, so people can uh, subscribe to that. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, besides that, though, the hard truth is that I spent a lot of time looking through release notes. Um, I oh really? Yeah, I like to kind of every week or so go through the rounds up roundup of uh, Redshift and uh, BigQuery and Snowflake release notes. There's actually yeah. a DBT user, Josh Andrews, who posts the Snowflake release notes when they come out. We yes. have like. RSS feeds for everything else in Slack, but he posts them, and I, I like I love reading them when he does. Um, <laughs> and I hope he doesn't mind if I shout him out like that. Um, but yeah, it's like for a long time in DBT, new stuff would come out, and we we're like, okay, how can we incorporate this into what DBT is doing? But anymore, it's just like I'll give you a really good example. Materialized views are top of mind for us right now because yeah. every major database supports them. The really challenging thing is every database has different constraints and requirements and none of them kind of work well together. Yeah. And so we have to do this, you know, the problem isn't that we're not aware of their existence. It's like, we have to think really hard about what's the place for materialized views in DBT. And um, that's the kind of problem I really love solving. And um, I've been working with my colleague, Jeremy, on our product team here at Fishtone Analytics. Uh, yeah. We love just kind of like closing our eyes and throwing out crazy thoughts. Like, well, what <laughs> if we use materialized views for this? Um, so that's really fun. It's equal parts like, Looking, I mean, I spent, I'm sure I've spent countless hours on the Amazon Redshift forums looking up bugs that I, I knew existed to see if there was any sort of resolution or workaround. Like, yeah, I think there's no replacement for just Googling uh, incessantly uh, when, you, when you want to find out about things. I, I think you're maybe one of the first people to mention a community. Uh, and I think that's probably a common thread in technology is that sometimes it feels um, like you're, you're doing it alone. A little bit and when i joined the dbt slack community um the improvement in both my code quality and my approaches uh, is dramatic and i just I, it's not like i live there I like i jump on every once in a while answer a question if i can to like give back but like the um the snowflake updates i, I can't tell you how many times i've been in with a client and they ask you know can snowflake do this and it's like well no not yet and then i'll well let me google real quick yeah no it can uh so those release notes are really critical because they're adding features all the time uh, and then having the ability to see other people, what they add into DBT and what like established practices there are, that's important because you don't want to reinvent the wheel all the time. Uh, and I'm guilty of that too. Sure. 
Um, oh. Yeah, the coolest part of the community, I think, is like uh, people do very creative things and they just share them. Yeah. And it's not like we ping people. We're like, you got to tell us what the cool stuff. It's just, you know, it's the it is the culture that we're trying to foster is like uh, ask questions, be helpful, tell people what you're working on, tell people when you're stuck, um, point out things that are interesting or cool. Um, and I love seeing that when people just like, this is a question. I did a cool thing. I thought other people would like it. Uh, here's what I did. Or like, here's a link to the source code or like, here's the blog post I wrote about it. I think that's always super cool to see. That's awesome. Um, and, and talking about technology a little more, is there anything that you've been really passionate about in the technology space lately? Something that's kind of captured your imagination? Um, yeah, I think that yeah, you asked maybe earlier, uh, how, how did any of this come to be like DBT, Fishtown Analytics? Uh, the, the answer in my mind has to do with directed acyclic graphs. Okay. I got, I got so bitten by the, the DAG uh, bug, if you will, like in college where I was like obsessed with graphs as a data structure. Um, this was around the same time I got really into triangles, um, which sounds okay. like a joke, but it's a serious statement. Um, I, I really liked fractals and I, in my head, there's just this sort of like similar thread that you can uh, kind of weave between like uh, fractals and DAGs and um, things like that. And so I, you know, the, the most fun I've ever had at work, was when I worked on the the DAG visualization in the DBT documentation website. Um, I think it looks pretty, I got a lot of help with the design on it, but yeah. it was just like, I was in my element. I was writing JavaScript code. I was trying to visualize DAGs and make everything like laid out, you know, sensibly. And um, it's a really, it, that's a tough problem in particular, but uh, I love a good DAG, you know? So graphs in general, I, I also have kind of a passion for, and particularly in the BI space, it feels like it's an underappreciated representation. So like the major BI tools, they don't support displaying graphs. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, I one of the coolest data viz projects I've ever done. In the early days of Fishtown Analytics, we we were a bootstrapped company. We were making open source software that you literally could not pay us for for years. Um, so we did a lot of analytics consulting and implementation. Um, I was doing work with a company that wanted to visualize um, sort of different paths through this like web experience that they had. Yeah. And um, depending on the things that you picked, you could go down other paths, whatever. So yeah, we modeled it. We were in mode analytics. I wrote a, a bunch of custom D3 code where we built the DAG and then we highlighted the different nodes based on like how frequently they were selected and you could refocus and say like, okay, from here, where did people go? Um, and it was this really cool, like, you know, we could show you a table with like link out percentages and things like that. But when you actually look at the DAG and like the, the edge weights and the node sizes and colors were sensitive to frequency or drop off, things like that. It was just like, oh, okay, I understand at a very high level how people are using this thing. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So the graphs in industry, so HashMap 2018, uh, when I joined, I was hired as an IoT engineer and we were going to build an IoT platform for streaming real-time data for mostly the oil space. Um, and it included like the storage of the data, the processing, alerting, all that. But one thing that was really tricky, probably the thing I think still is the trickiest part of that space is hierarchy, adding context to all these devices, uh, because that's not something you store in a, a structured database that goes in a graph database. And then displaying it too, also in a way that people could edit was really, really challenging. And so I had to jump into uh, front end dev work 
the project and we started using this library. I didn't do D3 because I'm I'm not that level like that. So that's like C, man, like that stuff's tough. But I found Viz.js uh, and we were able to build something really powerful. And I realized recently I'm working with another teammate. So Snowflake's role hierarchy, it's also a graph structure. It, but the only way they display it to you is tabularly. So if you want to like run down, okay, which users can access these tables? That's a hard, that's kind of a hard question to ask or, sure. or to answer. So we just, we haven't released it yet. We are wrapping up kind of like our pre, whatever alpha. We're not, we're not that formal with releases, but we're this close to having something I can pop in a Docker container and put on our website where I have a SQL query you can run against the, the Snowflake metadata tables. And then it generates JSON. Like I have it all structured. You paste it in and it will visualize your whole role hierarchy from like users and it's like highlighted, but it's the same, it's the same library we used to use. Uh, so I, I agree, graphs are really, really interesting and they're underserved. I'm shocked that I can't just plow in some, like an adjacency list to Tableau. Why can't, <laughs> it feels like they should be able to do that. Yeah, um, that sounds like really cool tool that you built. I think that it's, it's a, a great deployment mechanism is like put up a website where you copy and paste information and it renders something for you. Uh, so the idea for that, that's not mine. Um, I don't know if you've ever worked with GraphQL, but I worked for um, an oil company. We did some consulting where they wanted to convert their old WitsML, which is like a weird XML hybrid SOAP, like framework for IoT data from the oil field. Uh, and then they were going to build an actual handler library that used GraphQL. And they wanted us to build the like adapter. So a SOAP request would come in, we'd convert it to GraphQL. And then the response would come back, GraphQL eyes, and then we'd convert it back. So this was what we built. And it was a good learning experience, but it was an awful stack. It was such a pain. Um, and the only way to make it, because they re-release their GraphQL endpoints all the time. And it's really hard to visualize because uh, it, it's not just like documented with Swagger or whatever. So there's a website, it's GraphQL Voyager. And I don't know the exact link, but their method was run this query to your endpoint and then paste the results here and they will visualize all of it and it gets so deep. It's also a graph, right? Uh, and so I just I'm like, man, I can, I can maybe do that with this because I don't want to build OAuth to your Snowflake environment. That's going to take forever. Right, longer than the thing itself. Yeah, yeah. It, like eventually Snowflake's just going to release a, the ability to do that. I know that. So we're not going to like spend forever trying to build this. Um, that's pretty cool. cool, okay. So graphs, man, that's cool. It's good to know. Can about. I say one more thing about graphs? Yeah, I've been thinking please. about this so much for the past like two weeks. Uh, there's a guy named Stephen Wolfram. I think it's Stephen. Mm -hmm. He's the like Mathematica Wolfram Alpha guy. Yeah. Um, he wrote this incredibly long blog post with a team of people that's all about how they've understood the fundamental fabric of the universe, and it's it's graphs. The answer is graphs. Oh, and man. they're like. I, so I've only skimmed it. I'm going to do it. Uh, not a lot of justice, but if anyone is listening and likes graphs and I mean, I want to say like, if you like science fiction too, but like no offense, <laughs> Wolfram, uh, definitely check out the blog post. Um, it like tickled my brain in the same way that like fractals and things like that does where it's like, ah, yeah, this is, this feels right. So do you think, you know, there's that theory, like this is all simulation. Do you think that kind of feeds into that a little bit? Um, I'm not, I'm not in that camp okay. so much necessarily, but it is like, you know, this is, this is a sort of foundational belief that I have. It's like, yeah. uh, everything is, well, I, I don't want to get like too <laughs> out there, but we can if you want to. Um, yeah. I think that like de determinism prevails and like everything, you know, every action is the function of a cause. 
And um, that's true at a macroscopic level. It's got to be true in my mind at like a microscopic level. And it just sort of makes sense where it's like um, there, there's no magic happening in the universe. I think that like if I had to guess, which I'm not the person to answer this question, but if you're like, Drew, what's, what, how does the universe work? I would say like simple, simple rules with emergent properties. Sounds okay. right to me. Sounds right to me. Um, and that, you know, it's cool because like the thing that Wolfram wrote was all about how those simple rules are, are graph manipulations. And okay. in my head, I was like, yeah, this, this tracks, you know? Yeah. But anyway, I'm not making a commentary on how the universe works. That's like no, I... the scope of this podcast, but I liked reading it. <laughs> I like it. So then the graphs, so if you knew all the nodes, edges, all the weights, all the rules at a certain point in time, I know this is someone else's theory in thermodynamics, but is everything predetermined then? Could you just play it out from that point on? Um, yeah, I mean, that that makes sense to me. That sounds intuitive to yeah. me. But like, I'm not a quantum physicist. Maybe there's some reason why that's absolutely not the case. And, you know, I could believe it either way. Yeah. Um, okay, I can ask, can you see the team? Right. Have you seen the TV show Devs that came out recently? No, it's got Ron Swanson in it, though, right? Yeah, it's got Ron Swanson in it. Yeah, and I've seen his. Where I haven't seen it. So he's the CEO of like this tech company that does quantum computing. Um, I I like raved about it to my colleagues for for three days, and then after that, I I finished the first season, and um, I want to I have to revise my initial. Point. Oh no! I, I don't want to like ruin anything for anybody. Um, if if you watch it, we should talk about the ending. Okay, uh, but it's very much about this topic. It's like quantum computers simulate the universe. You can you can do interesting things uh, with like an all powerful computer if the universe is deterministic. Is maybe like all I'll say about it. Okay, so so a TV show, and I'm I'm really into TV series. Like it's a thing I got to try to avoid discussing because I will discuss it way beyond what other people want to chat with. But a series that was like that for me was Mr. Robot, where it started so strong. And then I'm like, I, I tell everyone, you got to watch it. It's the best thing. Yeah. And then I saw the ending and it was like, oh. Oh, I Not like the me. ending. Oh, um, see, and it wasn't for season one, like the ending. It's just, oh, okay. I thought what episode one was, was going to be the whole, like, I thought I was going to get Dexter, but for computer science, like cybersecurity. Yeah. It, um, it definitely like changed and, uh, what I think they like toned down some of the themes in later seasons where, you know, I, I think it came out around 2015, 2016, originally a lot of the early sample, like profiles.yaml files that we had in the documentation for GBT. It was like company evil corp username, oh, no. <laughs> like, um, Elliot. Um, and I, I loved I love Mr. Robot. My phone background is Mr. Robot. I thought they oh, did really? an excellent job. Yeah. Oh, what good um, timing. I, but, uh, I think shows like that where they kind of pull a trick on you, like, and I'm not going to get into it, but like um, Westworld was another one. Like, I'll watch it. Like, I'm I'm in at this point, but I have no clue what's going on. Like, I don't understand any. I got to, I'll finish the season so I don't get, you know, spoiler from the big stuff. And I'll be like, hey, can you explain to me, like, how the timelines work? Because I am lost. Yeah, I never got into Westworld, but I have heard lots of good things. Yeah, it's well produced. It's sure. well put together. Um, okay, so um, talking about kind of your career, about your technology, we, we've caught on a couple of themes here of um, getting real world practice, of leveraging your community. Uh, what other kind of secret weapons have you had in your career that you think have made you maybe a little successful, have helped you to succeed? 
Um, yeah, it's a great question. I uh, think I have to point to like curiosity and okay. knowledgeable, nice people in my life. Um, I know that um, every every interesting thought I've ever had like started as a question, whereas like I want to know more about that thing. Yeah. Um, and what's what's really cool is there's so much there are so many great resources available like for free online. Um, I I love YouTube videos. Really? Um, yeah, there's so many good ones, especially like technical or educational ones. Um, there's one I really like that I was watching last night. In fact, it's a guy named Ben Eater, and he okay. makes like computers on breadboards. Okay. Um, super cool, and he's just like, it's hours of amazing technical educational content that's like also I think really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of the things that I know about technology are a function of like reading the blog posts people have written or working yeah. next to somebody who's really smart and knows a lot about something and shoulder tapping them. Um, but yeah, it, I think it starts with like wanting to know more about, um, you know, how a thing works. Yeah. So videos, I also have really thrived in a video environment. I just, and I read whatever blog posts, but anything of depth of, of lasting like importance, I really struggle to pay attention to in the long term. So with videos, do you ever use any of those paid services like a cloud guru or plural site or anything like that? Um, no, I, I'm a youtube.com kind YouTube of guy. Man. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Um, yeah. I like it a lot. Um, what else? Uh, you know, there's, it's hard to find a collection of good, resources you know everyone likes different things but yeah. I, I found my people is how i feel about it uh there's another one called like live overflow and he okay. does a lot of um like security videos where he'll like solve some hacking problem and talk about like how to overflow a buffer you know using a python script against some service over the network or whatever and it's just like i'm probably not going to be in a security focused role directly in my life but yeah I benefit from knowing that these things exist and having a topical understanding of like, um, you know, approaches that people use and, and hopefully I'll, I'll recognize something at work one day and I'll go like, no, I watched a YouTube video about this. You can't do it that way. Um, <laughs> but there, there's, I, I, there's so many good ones. I've always liked those, um, the, those security ones, especially when there's been an interesting way to break through something. Uh, I remember a security professor, it, it was in like systems level programming, but this person was focused on security. They were just teaching to like continue doing what they actually wanted to do. And they talked about these um, historic uh, hacks that people figured out. And there's one that had to do with like freezing, like using um, compressed air to drop the temperature on RAM. So it would hold state long enough to get it out of one machine into another place that you could read it. And that that was an actual hack that was leveraged. Um, it, but to me, the challenge is I don't ever know where to find a collection of those kind of like consumable, ready for like a new audience uh, stories. Cause when I hear them, they stick with me and they're so interesting, but they're kind of hard to come across. Yeah. I think that's, you know, maybe if in the future you want to start a business venture, um, a collection of good YouTube channels sounds like a thing I'd, I'd like to work on. Um, I, I really identify with the way you said that, like much more th so than knowing an actual thing. It's more like these really good videos change my my mindset and like give me a framework for thinking about things. Yeah. Um, so that sure that frozen RAM uh, um, attack makes makes sense, you know, conceptually. And like there are probably ways that you can that changes your worldview. It's like okay, um, there's a physical thing here. It's not just logical like ones and zeros in memory that goes away when the computer's turned off. Like there's actually yeah. a chip, right? The thing for me that's similar was again watched a YouTube video. 
of somebody talking about breaking in through physical doors and like physical security. I know that one. I was going to mention that one. I've watched it two times full through. I recommend it to everyone. Yeah. Okay. If We should add the link to the, the show notes. But That's going in. Fundamentally changes my understanding of like what security even means. And it was yeah. from like DEF CON or something like that. I went on a sales trip and I'm not really like a sales trip kind of guy, but we went to Tulsa. I'm based in Oklahoma City with a snowflake rep and we were doing a donut drop. It's like an old school sales approach that they were super good at and whatever. I'll go along where we took boxes of donuts to different companies and almost no one because they're like these factories, like these older companies, they're not ready to accept randoms walking in. So we'd walk in and I... I had just seen this. I'm like, look, man, if we had a little compressed air, I could get through that motion sensor. Or yeah. you see how this doesn't line up? You just need to, a, a little thing. Or all those file cabinets, they probably use the same key. Oh, man, that is a good video. But you're right. It changes your mentality. When you're walking around, it's like none of this is as secure as it looks. Yeah, right on. So that's oh. ultimately like, that's the most powerful thing. Like, People know tons of things and incremental factual knowledge is, you know, still good when you get it. But if you can change someone's worldview uh, with with a thing that you write or say, like, uh, that's a that's a pretty cool. Um, I guess well, we can actually cut that part if it's not compelling. But maybe the thing that I did want to say was like, uh, I would like to think that in some in some ways we've done a little bit of that with DBT and some of the things we've written about where Absolutely. it fundamentally changes the way people think about, you know, their relationship to their, to their database, you know, like. I, I like the expression, uh, it's a tool, not a jewel, you know, like you, you're the redshift cluster, you're, you're paying for it, um, work it, create some schemas. Um, that, and that lasts far beyond any particular tool. It's a mindset. Your, your blog posts, I think are a really powerful part of that too. Cause it's not immediately, cause I can make DBT do a lot of things. Maybe you, you shouldn't make it do cause it is so open. And it was the blog post component. I remember that you guys have one on, uh, how to set up Snowflake for dbt usage and it doesn't it's not everything to everyone but that one starting point was what kicked me off on like i've done software development and even when it was like legacy java i still had a certain base set of expectations about version control cicd about automation and i don't know why it never occurred to me like why should i have to accept less when i move to the the analytics side of the house uh yeah so those posts they change like if you're wondering if that's happened i don't know i, I can speak for myself and certainly members of my company 100 percent um that's it's really cool they hear that thanks um so last question about kind of your career here um i like to ask this to a lot of people too because i think uh a lot of times we focus on the successes that folks have because that's the the thing that draws the attention but what about failures have been, there been any like powerful failures that have shaped uh the way you think about work about your career uh anything that stands out as being especially useful um, I can tell you that I've had one very specific, like mechanical technical failure that sticks out in my mind, which is that yeah. I was using a database called Redis at a, one of these college internships. I connected to the prod Redis database and I ran keys star, which totally locks the Redis cluster. It was like single threaded and it just sat there for like a minute trying to return all the keys in the database to me. Um, meanwhile, all the prod requests were like hanging up and it took the app down and that was like on i think my second day at the company and so it was just like uh i i very quickly learned uh how important it is to verify the database you're connecting to i thought i was in dev or something like that um that's you know everyone's got that story and i think there, there's a cool twitter thread about this like share your biggest can i say the word 
fuck yeah, down here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, share your share your biggest fuck up. Yeah. Um, just because like everyone's gonna do it, and it's helpful for like the people you know starting new roles to understand like okay, no one's perfect. But I don't think that's a perfect answer for me to give. I think the truth is. It remains to be determined what my my big <laughs> failures and mistakes are, and I think I'll only really realize them in the future. Um, yeah. And it, it's one of those tough things where it's just like, I could be actively failing at something today, and um, you know, if someone points it out or if I become self aware, I'd love to fix it. But some of these things, it's like, it's only clear in retrospect that you messed something up. Um, yeah. It's not like running key stars and taking a prod. It's more like, I I missed something important, or um, I should have paid more attention to to whatever you know and um i i try to always be attuned to the decisions i'm making and why i'm making them and try to avoid those maybe pitfalls but how do you know sometimes you know yeah that's tricky but and it's a broader like how do you take stock of the environment you're in at the time you're in it and really be able to like course adjust at the time that that story you tell i think it's really emblematic of not a dysfunction necessarily, but maybe a misunderstanding or misconception about what security really means. Because uh, often when I'm interacting in a security environment and we're making shortcuts for some reason, some, for time, we don't we don't have time to do this. This is just a POC, right? Um, the idea is like, well, no one's going to hack into this. And it's like, that's not really your security concern. It re- almost never in a lot of my environments, it's not going to be that. It's going to be you over-provision the, the co-op and on day two, they had access to the prod Redis cluster. Like that's really the concern for security. So I like that story because it it shows a couple learning points, not just be aware, but also like, should you have been able to do that in the first place? Um, yeah, it's a good point. I'll still take responsibility for it. Oh, for uh, sure. But uh, no, it's a good point. Yeah, it's um, you got to set people up for success, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Coming, uh, coming up here towards the end, I wanted to move into a lightning round. Um, where these are going to be kind of quick hit uh, questions. And if, if anything takes off as being particularly interesting, we'll dive into that. Uh, otherwise, we'll just move on to the next one. So okay. first question, what is your favorite meal to cook? I love baking salmon. If I really? could bake salmon every night, I would. Why? What is it about salmon that you like? Um, it's, a, it's a pretty versatile fish. Uh, it's, it's hard to, in my experience, hard to overcook. Yep. Uh, I probably won't die if I undercook it. Okay. Um, and you could put a lot of different things on it and it tastes good. Um, nice. my right now is like soy sauce, honey, and like other random things in my fridge. That's me. It's pop on there. Yeah, it's going to be great. And like there's okay. some Brussels sprouts and carrots. Nice, man. Classy. Uh, what's your favorite meal to order out? Um, I love a good, uh, I'm going to say Euro. But okay. maybe so, gyro, I've heard. I think it's gyro would be the right I think gyro is good. Yeah, the kind of Greek uh, taco is not the right word, but like sandwich kind of. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, there's something special about getting like a takeout gyro with French fries and uh, make, it a, make it a big mess. On the Dang, way man. That's a good yeah. answer. Oh, this is the first time that an answer has really made me like, I got to go order one of those. Yeah. Are you a morning person or a night person? Um. I, I want to be a morning person, but I just can't do it. I'm a, I'm a night owl. Um, you know how many times people say that? Like, yeah. it's not ever just night owl. Like, everyone has to, and I agree with this too. Like, I want to be a morning person. I feel like those morning people, they get so much done. Like, they feel vibrant and alive. Um, that's just not me. It's hard to do. The, um, the thing that I really love is like 8 p.m. to 
like just say 11 or in college you would actually i would shift that back like a couple <laughs> hours more but um it's just like no i no one has any expectations of me whatsoever uh i don't feel like i'm on the clock or anything so like all these things that are um playing in my head it's just like uh take a couple hours dig way into it and see where you come out the other side do you listen to uh my brother my brother and me no never Okay, so it's a podcast, and it just—it felt so timely. It's relatively popular. It's kind of a comedy podcast, and they just this week did a section on like the eight thirty time as being really magical. It's like you could do any. Like my wife and I, our daughter's down. Like we could watch a movie right now. It's like, and we never can watch a movie. So I agree, that's a great time. Um, what about sport? Do you watch any sports? Do you have a favorite professional sport or sport team? Um, yeah, I do. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, go birds. Is that go birds? Say that. Yeah, we won a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. I don't know if okay. you heard. Um, yeah, we beat we beat Tom Brady and the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I uh, I have to admit I'm not. I want to be a sports person. I'm an OKC. I'd love to go see a Thunder game. I just finished a book called Boomtown that covered a lot of like the intricacies of how like we got a, a, a NBA team here. Uh, but. This question was added by our sales guy, who's much more of like a traditional sports kind of person. I never would have asked to, and I only know about birds because of uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They have oh. an episode where they go out and yeah. try out for the Eagles. Um, yeah, Vin- Vince Papali, I think is the guy's name. It's a true story. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, favorite country you've you know ever visited or lived in? Um, I've had the uh, good fortune of visiting uh london and i was in paris once and um i think that's the extent of my european travels otherwise really just been in north america and i have to tell you there's no city in the world quite like montreal really Uh, montreal i'm a huge fan i thought it like uh was this great blend of of metropolitan like new york it felt european it was very clean and pretty and historic uh i will go to montreal every single chance i get Really? Okay. I'll have to check that out. I know I'd heard in Canada, I've got a lot of friends in Seattle and they rave about Vancouver, that it's just the most incredible, gorgeous place, the natural beauty there. And then the, the ocean. Um, so that's two now that I've got to go see Vancouver and Montreal. Uh, what's your go-to development language? It's going to be Python. Python. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and in SQL, this is something I'd never thought to ask anyone before. But it's something that I see you guys have made kind of a meme about in your um, in like your merch and stuff like that. Do you use trailing commas in your SQL or leading commas? Yeah, so I get why leading commas are appealing. I I objectively think they're better than trailing commas. Really? And yet there's just some things where I prefer the aesthetic, and I think the I think the leading commas are ugly. I, I, it's not rational. I'm not proud of it, but like I'm, I'm trailing commas. That's me. I and I don't know if this is just the tendency of who I work with, but I've noticed that older, like DBA grizzled, like battle hardened folks, they're leading comma folks. Yeah, they like to do that. And so, um, anytime I have to work on a project where they do have a strict style guide, which is good, it's a good sign, but it has me leading commas. Ugh. Oh, I hate that. Okay. Sorry. And then uh, the last one. Uh, this is an interesting one that I, I like to ask people. What would you be doing if you weren't working in software, if you could be doing anything else? Um, in, in a fantasy world where I'm uh, skilled at things that I have actually not very good skills in, um, I, I wanted to be a journalist growing up. Um, really? I, yeah, I enjoy writing. 
I should write a lot more than I currently do. Um, it was in particular, like I would read sports journalism in the newspaper and yeah. I, I loved the like euphemisms and turns of phrase. Um, I'll give you a very quick example that's in my mind right now. Yeah. I was, I was watching like, here's the thing. Maybe someone's going to listen to this years from now and they're not going to realize that we're in a quarantine right now, but like, yeah. I can't leave my house unless it's essential. So I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos yeah. and one of the things I've been watching has been like poker videos because I, I like the concept of poker and I'm really bad at it. I want to learn all there is to learn about poker. And one of, um, one of these euphemisms I heard from the poker announcers was like, he's more tilted than Lucille Ostero on the Gravitron or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, that's the best sentence I've ever heard in my entire it's life. It's really obscure. Yeah. And it's just like sports journalism. You get to like, you get to deliver sentences like that, I think. I mean, poker is a sport. I don't know. I don't want to make anyone upset, but like, <laughs> I don't like so. Um, but it was just this this combination of like, it's a seemingly serious subject that deserves space in the newspaper with like, you get to say literally whatever you want and it can be really funny. Um, and I that was what I wanted to do. I still like the idea of it. I would love to, you know, decades from now, write about technology. I think that'd be really cool. That would be cool. Wow. Um, yeah, no, commentary, particularly commentary on things that on the surface don't look that like to an outside observer, like they're playing poker. And sometimes they're not even allowed to talk to each other. Like that, who, but if you can turn that into something exciting and that has stakes uh, and maybe even throw in a joke or two like that, that's really cool. Uh, okay, so that's all I had for the the lightning round. Um, I did, I, I'd like to give people an opportunity. You're on the podcast. Is there anything you wanted to give visibility to a project or, or media product or anything you just want people to know about? Anything you want to share? Um, yeah, check us out on uh, Twitter and uh, at www.getdbt.com. Uh, we're always building new things in DBT core. There's links to join us on Slack. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you listen to this and, uh, <laughs> somehow felt compelled to learn more about what I've been working on. Um, yeah, I want to, I want to second the Slack, uh, uh, recommendation. I'm on there as well. And I think my niche that I found is someone will ask a question and then I will give a 40 to 60% correct answer really quickly. And then someone much more experienced will come in with a 100%. But I try to be quick. That, that's kind of the niche I'll try to fill. So uh, join. It's it's so welcoming to new users. Often these kind of things can feel intimidating, but it's a really welcoming place. Yeah, it's. Um, I wish that was the thing that I could take credit for. But it's not me. It's everyone else. Uh, everyone in the Slack does a great job. And I'm uh, so grateful we have such a vibrant and welcoming and helpful community. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, a lot, Drew, for joining us today. Um, and then also thank you, the audience, for listening. As always, uh, please subscribe for more Data Rebel content, and we will see you next week. Great. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for listening to Data Rebels on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the Data Rebels on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.